2: section twelve of the king in yellow by robert w chambers this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ava stays the street of the first shell part three and four three it was four in the morning when he came out of the prison of the condemned with the secretary of the american legation a knot of people had gathered around the american minister's carriage which stood in front of the prison the horses stamping and pawing in the icy street the coachman huddled on the box wrapped in furs southwark helped the secretary into the carriage and shook hands with trent thanking him for coming how the scoundrel did stare he said your evidence was worse than a kick but it saved his skin for the moment at least and prevented complications the secretary sighed we have done our part now let them prove him a spy and we wash our hands of him jump in captain come along trent i have a word to say to captain southwark i won't detain him said trent hastily and dropping his voice southwark help me now you know the story from the blackguard you know that the child is at his rooms get it and take it to my own apartment and if he is shot i will provide a home for it i understand said the captain gravely will you do this at once at once he replied their hands met in a warm clasp and the captain southwark climbed into the carriage motioning trent to follow but he shook his head saying goodbye and the carriage rolled away he watched the carriage to the end of the street then started toward his own quarter but after a step or two hesitated stopped and finally turned away in the opposite direction something Perhaps it was the sight of the prisoner he had so recently confronted nauseated him. He felt the need of solitude and quiet to collect his thoughts. The events of the evening had shaken him terribly, but he would walk it off, forget, bury everything, and then go back to Sylvia. He started on swiftly, and for a time the bitter thoughts seemed to fade, and when he paused at the last, breathless, under the Arc de Triomphe, the bitterness and the wretchedness of the whole thing yes of his whole misspent life came back with a pang then the face of the prisoner stamped with the horrible grimace of fear grew in the shadows before his eyes sick at heart he wandered up and down under the great arch, striving to occupy his mind peering up at the sculptured cornices to read the names of the heroes in the battles which he knew were engraved there. But always the ashen face of Hartman followed him, grinning with terror. Or was it terror? Was it not triumph? At the thought he leaped like a man who feels a knife at his throat, but after a savage tramp around the square came back again and sat down to battle with his misery. The air was cold, but his cheeks were burning with angry shame. Shame? Why? Was it because he had married a girl whom chance had made a mother? Did he love her? Was this miserable human existence, then, his end and aim in life? He turned his eyes upon the secrets of his heart and read an evil story, the story of the past, and he covered his face for shame, while, keeping time to the dull pain throbbing in his head, his heart beat out the story for the future shame and disgrace roused at last from a lethargy which had begun to numb the bitterness of his thoughts he raised his head and looked about a sudden fog had settled in the streets the arches of the ark were choked with it he would go home a great horror of being alone seized him but he was not alone the fog was peopled with phantoms all around him in the mist they moved drifting through the arches in lengthening lines and vanished while from the fog others rose up swept past and were engulfed he was not alone for even at his side they crowded touched him swarmed before him beside him behind him pressed him back seized and bore him with them through the mist down a dim avenue through lanes and alleys white with fog they moved and if they spoke their voices were dull as the vapor which shrouded them at last in front a bank of masonry and earth cut by a massive iron-barred gate towered up in the fog slowly and more slowly they glided shoulder to shoulder and thigh to thigh then all movements ceased a sudden breeze stirred the fog it wavered and eddied objects became more distinct a pallor crept above the horizon, touching the edges of the watery clouds, and drew dull sparks from a thousand bayonets. Bayonets! They were everywhere, cleaving the fog or flowing beneath it in rivers of steel. High on the wall of masonry and earth, a great gun loomed, and around it figures moved in silhouette. Below, a broad torrent of bayonets swept through the iron-barred gateway, out into the shadowy plain. It became lighter. Faces grew more distinct among the marching masses, and he recognized one. You, Philip! The figure turned its head. Trent cried, Is there room for me? But the other only waved his arm in vague adieu, and was gone with the rest presently the cavalry began to pass squadron on squadron crowding out into the darkness then many cannon then an ambulance then again the endless line of bayonets beside him a cuirassier sat on his steaming horse and in front among a group of mounted officers he saw a general with the astrakhan collar of his dolman turned up about his bloodless face Some women were weeping near him, and one was struggling to force a loaf of black bread into a soldier's haversack. The soldier tried to aid her, but the sack was fastened, and his rifle bothered him, so Trent held it, while the woman unbuttoned the sack and forced in the bread, now all wet with her tears. The rifle was not heavy. Trent found it wonderfully manageable. Was the bayonet sharp? He tried it. Then a sudden longing, a fierce, imperative desire, took possession of him. Schret cried a gay man, clanging to the barred gate. encore trois, mon vous?' Trent looked up, and the rat-killer laughed in his face. But when the soldier had taken the rifle again, and, thanking him, ran hard to catch his battalion, he plunged into the thong about the gateway. "'Are you going?' he cried to a marine who sat in the gutter bandaging his foot. Yes. Then a girl, a mere child, caught him by the hand and led him into the café which faced the gate. The room was crowded with soldiers, some, white and silent, sitting on the floor, others groaning on the leathered cover of settees. The air was sour and suffocating. Choose, said the girl with a little gesture of pity. They can't go. In a heap of clothing on the floor he found a capote and a capi. She helped him buckle his knapsack, cartridge box, and belt, and showed him how to load the chassepot rifle holding it on her knees. When he thanked her, she started to her feet. You are a foreigner. American, he said, moving toward the door, but the child barred his way. I am a Breton. My father is up there with the cannon of the Marine. He will shoot you if you are a spy. They faced each other a moment. Then, sighing, he bent over and kissed the child. Pray for France, little one, he murmured, and she repeated with a pale smile. For France, and for you, poor monsieur. He ran across the street and through the gateway. Once outside, he edged into line and shouldered his way along the road. A corporal passed, looked at him, repassed, and finally called an officer. You belong to the 60th, growled the corporal, looking at the number on his kepe. We have no use for frontiers, added the officer, catching sight of his black trousers. I wish to volunteer in place of a comrade, said Trent, and the officer shrugged his shoulders and passed on. Nobody paid much attention to him, one or two merely glancing at his trousers. The road was deep with slush and mud plowed, and torn by wheels and hoofs, a soldier in front of him retched his foot in an icy rut and dragged himself to the edge of the embankment groaning the plain on either side of them was grey with melting snow here and there behind dismantled head rows, stood wagons bearing white flags with red crosses sometimes the driver was a priest in a rusty hat and gown sometimes a crippled mobile once they passed a wagon driven by a sister of charity silent empty houses with great rents in their walls and every window blank huddled along the road further on within the zone of danger nothing of human habitation remained except here and there a pile of frozen bricks or a blackened cellar choked with snow for some time trent had been annoyed by the man behind him who kept treading on his heels Convinced, at last, that it was intentional, he turned to Ramonzo Street and found himself face to face with a fellow student from the Beau Arts. Trent stared. I thought you were in the hospital. The other shook his head, pointing to his bandaged jaw. I see. You can't speak. Can I do anything? The wounded man rummaged in his haversack and produced a crust of black bread. He can't eat it. His jaw is smashed. He wants you to chew it for him. Said the soldier next to him. Trent took the crust and grinding it in his teeth, morsel by morsel, passed it back to the starving man. From time to time, mounted orderlies sped to the front, covering them with slush. It was a chilly, silent march through the sodden meadows, wreathed in fog. Along the railroad embankment, across the ditch, another column moved parallel to their own. Trent watched it. A somber mass, now distinct, now vague now blotted out in a puff of fog. Once, for half an hour, he lost it. But when again it came into view, he noticed a thin line detach itself from the flank, embellying in the middle, swinging rapidly to the west. At the same moment, a prolonged crackling broke out in the fog in front. Other lines began to slough off from the column, swinging east and west, and the crackling became continuous. A battery passed at full gallop, and he drew back with his comrades to give it way. It went into action a little to the right of his battalion, and as the shot from the first rifle piece boomed through the mist, the cannon from the fortifications opened with a mighty roar. An officer galloped by, shouting something which Trent did not catch, but he saw the ranks in front suddenly part company with his own and disappear in the twilight. More officers rode up and stood beside him, peering into the fog. Away, in front, the crackling had become one prolonged crash. It was a dreary waiting. Trent chewed some bread for the man behind, who tried to swallow it, and after a while shook his head, motioning Trent to eat the rest himself. A corporal offered him a little brandy and he drank it, but when he turned around to return the flask, the corporal was lying on the ground. Alarmed, he looked over at the soldier next to him, who shrugged his shoulders and opened his mouth to speak, but something struck him, and he rolled over and over into the ditch below. At that moment, the horse of one of the officers gave a bound and backed into the battalion, lashing out with his heels. One man was ridden over, another was kicked in the chest and hurled through the ranks. The officer sank his spurs into the horse and forced him to the front again, where he stood trembling the cannonade seemed drawn nearer a staff officer riding slowly up and down the battalion suddenly collapsed in his saddle and clung to his horse's mane one of his boots dangled crimsoned and dripping from the stirrup then out of the mist in front men came running the roads the fields the ditches were full of them and many of them fell for an instant, he imagined he saw horsemen riding about like ghosts in the vapors beyond, and a man behind him cursed horribly, declaring he too had seen them and that they were uhlans. But the battalion stood inactive, and the mist fell again over the meadows. The colonel sat heavy upon his horse, his bullet-shaped head buried in the astrakhan collar of his dolman, his fat legs sticking straight out in the stirrups. The buglers clustered about him with bugles poised, and behind him a staff officer in a pale blue jacket smoked a cigarette and chatted with the captain of the hussars. From the road in front came the sound of furious galloping, and an orderly reined up beside the colonel, who motioned him to the rear without turning his head. Then, on the left, a confused murmur arose, which ended in a shout. A hussar passed like the wind, followed by another, and another— and then the squadron after squadron whirled by them into sheeted mist. at that instant the colonel reared in his saddle the bugles clanged and the whole battalion scrambled down the embankment over the ditch and started across the soggy meadow almost at once trent lost his cap something snatched it from his head he thought it was a tree branch a good many of his comrades rolled over in the slush and ice and he imagined that they had slipped one pitched right across his path and he stopped to help him up but the man screamed when he touched him and an officer shouted forward forward so he ran on again it was a long jog through the mist and he was often obliged to shift his rifle when at last they lay panting behind the railroad embankment he looked about him he had felt the need of action of a desperate physical struggle of killing and crushing He had seized with a desire to fling himself among the masses and tear right and left. He longed to fire, to use the thin, sharp bayonet on his chassepot. He had not expected this. He wished to become exhausted, to struggle and cut until incapable of lifting his arm. Then he had intended to go home. He heard a man say that half the battalion had gone down in the charge, and he saw another examining a corpse under their embankment. The body, still warm, was clothes in a strange uniform, but even when he noticed the spiked helmet lying a few inches further away, he did not realize what had happened. The colonel sat on his horse a few feet to the left, his eyes sparkling under the crimson capet. Trent heard him reply to an officer, I can hold it, but another charge and I won't have enough men to sound a bugle. Were the Prussians here? Trent asked of a soldier who sat wiping, the blood trickling from his hair. Yes, the hussars cleaned them out. We caught their crossfire. We are supporting a battery on the embankment, said another. Then the battalion crawled over the embankment and moved along the lines of twisted rails. Trent rolled up his trousers and tucked them into his woolen socks, but they halted again, and some of the men sat down on the dismantled railroad track trent looked for his wounded comrade from the bow arts he was standing in his place very pale the cannonade had become terrific for a moment the mist lifted he caught a glimpse of the first battalion motionless on the railroad tracks in front of regiments on either flank and then as the fog settled again the drums beat and the music of the bugles began away on the extreme left a restless movement passed among the troops the colonel threw up his arm the drums rolled and the battalion moved off through the fog they were near the front now for the battalion was firing as it advanced ambulances galloped along the base of the embankment to the rear and the hussars passed and repassed like phantoms they were in the front at last for all about them was movement and turmoil While from the fog, close at hand, came cries and groans and crashing volleys. Shells fell everywhere, bursting along the embankment, splashing them with frozen slush. Trent was frightened. He began to dread the unknown, which lay there crackling and flaming in obscurity. The shock of the cannon sickened him. He could even see the fog light up with a dull orange as the thunder shook the earth. It was near, he felt certain, for the colonel shouted, forward, and the 1st Battalion was hastening to it. He felt its breath. He trembled, but hurried on. A fearful discharge in front terrified him. Somewhere in the fog, men were cheering, and the colonel's horse, streaming with blood, plunged about in the smoke. Another blast and shock, right in his face, almost stunned him, and he faltered. All the men to the right were down. His head swam. The fog and smoke stupefied him. He put out his hand for a support and caught something. It was the wheel of a gun carriage, and a man sprang from behind it, aiming a blow at his head with a rammer, but stumbled back, shrieking with a bayonet through his neck, and Trent knew that he had killed. Mechanically, he stooped to pick up his rifle, but the bayonet was still in the man who lay beating with red hands against the sod. It sickened him, and he leaned on the cannon. Men were fighting all around him now, and the air was foul with smoke and sweat. Somebody seized him from behind and another in front, but others in turn seized them or struck them solid blows. The click, click, click of bayonets infuriated him, and he grasped the rammer and struck out blindly until it was shivered to pieces a man threw his arm around his neck and bore him to the ground but he throttled him and raised himself on his knees he saw a comrade seize the cannon and fall across it with his skull crushed in he saw the colonel tumble clean out of his saddle into the mud then consciousness fled when he came to himself he was lying on the embankment among the twisted rails on every side huddled men who cried out and cursed and fled away into the fog and he staggered to his feet and followed them. Once he stopped to help a comrade with a bandaged jaw who could not speak but clung to his arm for a time, and then fell dead in the freezing mire, and again he aided another who groaned, Trent, c'est moi, until a sudden volley in the mist relieved him of his charge. An icy wind swept down from the heights, cutting the fog into shreds. For an instant, with an evil leer, the sun peered through the naked woods of the Vincennes, sank like a blood clot in the battery smoke, lower, lower, into the blood-soaked plain. four when midnight sounded from the belfry of Saint-Sulpice, the gates of Paris were still choked with fragments of what had once been an army. They entered with the night, a sullen horde, splattered with slime faint with hunger and exhaustion there was little disorder at first and the throng at the gates parted silently as the troops tramped along the freezing streets confusion came as the hours passed swiftly and more swiftly crowding squadron after squadron and battery on battery horses plunging and caissons jolting the remnants from the front surged through the gates a chaos of cavalry and artillery struggling for the right of way close upon them stumbled the infantry here a skeleton of a regiment marching with a desperate attempt at order there was a riotous mob mobiles crushing their way to the streets then a turmoil of horsemen cannon troops without officers officers without men then again a line of ambulances the wheels groaning under their heavy loads dumb with misery the crowd looked on all through the day the ambulances had been arriving and all day long the ravaged throng whimpered and shivered by the barriers at noon the crowd was increased tenfold filling the squares about the gates and swarming over the inner fortifications at four o'clock in the afternoon the german batteries suddenly wreathed themselves in smoke and the shells fell fast on montparnasse at twenty minutes after four two projectiles struck a house in the rue de barc and a moment later the first shell fell in the latin quarter braith was painting in bed when west came in very much scared i wish you'd come down our house had been knocked into a cocked hat and i'm afraid that some of the pillagers may take it into their heads to pay us a visit tonight. Braith jumped out of bed and bundled himself into a garment which had once been an overcoat. "'Anybody hurt?' he inquired, struggling with a sleeve full of dilapidated lining. "'No. Colette is barricaded in the cellar, and the concierge ran away to the fortifications. "'There will be a rough gang there if the bombardment keeps up. You might help us—' "'Of course,' said Braith, but it was not until they had reached the Rue Serpentine and had turned in the passage which led to West Cellar that the latter cried, have you seen jack trent today? no replied braith looking troubled he was not at ambulance headquarters he stayed to take care of sylvia i suppose a bomb came crashing through the roof of a house at the end of the alley and burst in the basement showering the street with slate and plaster a second struck a chimney and plunged into the garden followed by an avalanche of bricks and another exploded with a deafening report in the next street They hurried along the passage to the steps which led to the cellar. Here again, Braith stopped. Don't you think I had better run up to see if Jack and Sylvia are well entrenched? I can get back before dark. No, go in and find Colette, and I'll go. No, no, let me, there's no danger. I know it, replied Wes calmly, and dragging Braith into the alley pointed to the cellar steps. The iron door was barred. Colette, Colette, he called, the door swung inward, and the girl sprang up the stairs to meet them. At that instant, Braith, glancing behind him, gave a startled cry, and, pushing the two before him into the cellar, jumped down after them and slammed the iron door. A few seconds later, a heavy jar from the outside shook the hinges. "'They are here,' muttered West, "'very pale.' "'That door,' observed Colette calmly, "'will hold for Braith examined the low iron structure, now trembling with the blows rained on it from without. West glanced anxiously at Colette, who displayed no agitation, and this comforted him. I don't believe they will spend much time here, said Braith. They only rummage in cellars for spirits, I imagine. Unless they hear that valuables are buried here. But surely nothing is buried here, exclaimed Braith uneasily. Unfortunately, there is, growled West that miserly landlord of mine a crash came from outside followed by a yell cut him short then blow after blow shook the doors until there came a sharp snap a clinking of metal and a triangular bit of iron fell inwards leaving a hole through which struggled a ray of light instantly west knelt and shoving his revolver through the aperture fired every cartridge for a moment the alley resounded with the racket of the revolver then absolute silence followed presently a single questioning blow fell upon the door and a moment later another and another and then a sudden crack zigzagged across the iron plate here said west seizing colette by the wrist you follow me braith and he ran swiftly towards a circular spot of light at the further end of the cellar the spot of light came from a barred manhole above west motioned braith to mount on his shoulders push it over you must with little effort braith lifted the barred cover and scrambled out on his stomach and easily raised colette from west's shoulders quick old chap cried the later braith twisted his legs around a fence chain and leaned down again the cellar was flooded with a yellow light and the air reeked with the stench of petroleum torches the iron door still held but a whole plate of metal was gone and now they looked a figure came creeping through holding a torch quick whispered braith jump and west hung dangling until colette grasped him by the collar and he was dragged out then her nerves gave way and she wept hysterically but west threw his arm around her and led her across the gardens into the next street braith, after replacing the manhole cover and piling some stone slabs from the wall over it rejoined them it was almost dark they hurried through the street and now only lighted by burning buildings or the swift glare of the shells they gave wide berth to the fires but at a distance saw the flitting forms of pillagers among the debris sometimes they passed a female fury crazed with drink-shrieking anathemas upon the world or some slouching lout who blackened face and hands betrayed his share in the work of destruction at last they reached the Seine and passed the bridge and then bray said i must go back i am not sure of jack and sylvia as he spoke he made way for a crowd which came trampling across the bridge and along the river wall by the d'orsay barracks in the midst of it west caught a measured tread of a platoon. a lantern passed a file of bayonets then another lantern which glimmered on a deathly face behind and colette gasped hartmann and he was gone they peered fearfully across the embankment holding their breaths there was a shuffle of feet on the quay and the gate of the barracks slammed a lantern shone for a moment at the postern the crowd pressed to the grille then came the clang of the volley from the stone parade one by one the petroleum torches flared up along the embankment and now the whole square was in motion down from the champs elysées and across the place de la concorde straggled the fragments of the battle a company here, and a mob there, they poured in from every street followed by women and children, and a great murmur, borne on the icy wind, swept through the arc to triumph and down the dark avenue. Produce, perdus a ragged end of a battalion was pressing past the specter of annihilation. West groaned, then a figure sprang from the shadowy ranks and called West lame, and when he saw it was trying, he cried out trent seized him white with terror sylvia west stared speechless but colette moaned oh sylvia sylvia and they are shelling the quarter trent shouted braith but he was gone and they could not overtake him the bombardment ceased as Trent crossed the Boulevard Saint Germain, but the entrance to the Rue de was blocked by the heap of smoking bricks. Everywhere the shells had torn great holes in the pavement, the cafe was a wreck of splinters and glass, the bookstore tottered, ripped from roof to basement, and the little bakery long since closed bulged outward above a mass of slate and tin. He climbed over the steaming bricks and hurried into the Rue de Tournon On the corner a fire blazed, lighting up his own street, and on the bank wall beneath a shattered glass lamp a child was writing with a bit of cinder. Here fell the first shell. The letters stared him in the face, the rat-killer finished and stepped back to view his work, but catching sight of Trent's bayonet screamed and fled and as trent staggered across the shattered street from holes and crannies and the ruins fierce women fled from their work of pillage cursing him at first he could not find his house for tears blinded him but he felt along the wall and reached the door a lantern burned in the concierge's lodge and the old man lay dead beside it faint with fright he leaned a moment on his rifle then snatching the lantern sprang up the stairs He tried to call, but his tongue hardly moved. On the second floor he saw plaster on the stairway, and on the third floor was torn, and the concierge lay in a pool of blood across the landing. The next floor was his. Theirs. The door hung from its hinges. The walls gaped. He crept in and sank down by the bed, and there two arms were flung around his neck, and a tear-stained face sought his own. Sylvia! Oh, Jack! Jack! from the tumbled pillow beside them a child wail they brought it it is mine she sobbed ours he whispered with his arms around them both then from stairs below came Brace's anxious voice trent is all well end of section twelve section thirteen of the king in yellow by robert w chambers this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Ava Stays. the street of our lady of the fields et tous les jours passés dans le chisses nous sont comtes comme des jours à one the street is not fashionable neither is it shabby it is a praia among streets a street without a quarter it is generally understood to lie outside the pale of the aristocratic avenue de Observatoire. The students of the Montparnasse quarter consider it swell and will have none of it. The Latin Quarter, from the Luxembourg, its northern frontier sneers at its respectability and regards with disfavor the correctly costumed students who haunt it. Few strangers go into it. At times, however, the Latin Quarter students use it as a thoroughfare between the Rue de Rennes and the Boullier. But except for that and the weekly afternoon visits of parents and guardians to the convent near the Rue Vavin, the street of Our Lady of the Fields is as quiet as a Passy boulevard. Perhaps the most respectable portion lies between the Rue de Grand Chamier and the Rue Vavin. At least, this was the conclusion arrived at by the Reverend Joel Byram, as he rambled through it with Hastings in charge. To Hastings the street looked pleasant in the bright June weather, and he had begun to hope for its election when the Reverend Byram shied violently at the cross on the convent opposite. "'Jesuits!' he muttered. "'Well?' "'said Hastings warily. "'I imagine we won't find anything better. "'You say yourself that vice is triumphant in Paris, "'and it seems to me that in every street "'we find Jesuits or something worse.' "'After a moment,' he repeated, "'or something worse, "'which, of course, I would not notice "'except for your kindness in warning me.' "'Dr. Byram sucked in his lips and looked about him. "'He was impressed by the evident respectability "'of the surroundings.' Then, frowning at the convent, he took Hastings' arm and shuffled across the street to an iron gateway, which bore the number two hundred one B's, painted in white on a blue ground. Below this was a notice printed in English one, for the porter, please oppress once, two, for the servant, please oppress twice, three, for the parlour, please oppress thrice hastings touched the electric button three times and they were ushered through the garden and into the parlour by a trim maid the dining-room door just beyond was open and from the table in plain view a stout woman hastily arose and came toward them hastings caught a glimpse of a young man with a big head and several snuffy old gentlemen at breakfast before the door closed and the stout woman waddled into the room bring with her an aroma of coffee and a black poodle it is a pleasure to you receive she cried monsieur is english no american of course my pension it is for americans surtout. out here i'll speak english says a the personnel the servants do speak plus ou moins a little I am happy to have you come, Penisieres. Madame began Dr. Byram, but was cut short again. Ah, yes, I know. Ah, mon Dieu, you do not speak French, but you have come to learn. My husband does speak French with the Penisieres. We have at the moment a family American who learn of my husband French here the poodle grovelled at dr byram and was promptly cuffed by his mistress Vutu she cried with a slap Vutu Ah, a le vilain oh mes madame said hastings smiling il n'est pas le tres the poodle fled and his mistress cried ah the accent charming he does speak already french like a parisian young gentleman then dr byram managed to get in a word or two and gathered more or less information with regards to prices it is a pension sur mes my clientele is of the best indeed a pension de famille where one is at home then they went upstairs to examine hastings future quarters test the bed springs and arrange for the weekly towel allowance dr byram appeared satisfied madame Murat accompanied them to the door and rang for the maid but as hastings stepped out into the gravel walk his guide and mentor paused for a moment and fixed madame with his watery eyes you understand he said he is a youth of most careful upbringing and his character and morals are without a stain he is young and has never been abroad never seen a large city And his parents have requested me, as an old family friend living in Paris, to see that he is placed under good influences, he is to study art, but on no account would his parents wish him to live in the Latin Quarter if they knew the immorality which is rife there. A sound like the click of a latch interrupted him, and he raised his eyes, but not in time to see the maid slap the big-headed young man behind the parlor door. Madame coughed cast a deadly glance behind her, and then beamed on Dr. Byram. It is well that he come here. The pension, more serious illness, exists by it is not any, she announced with conviction. So, as there was nothing more to add, Dr. Byram joined Hastings at the gate. I trust, he said, eyeing the convent, that you'll make no acquaintance among Jesuits. Hastings looked at the convent until a pretty girl passed before the grey façade, and then he looked at her. A young fellow with a paint-box and canvas came swinging along, stopped before the pretty girl, and said something during the brief but vigorous handshake at which they both laughed, and he went his way, calling back, «Ademand, Valentine!» in the same breath as she cried, «Ademand!» «Valentine!» thought Hastings. «What a quaint name!» and he started to follow the Reverend Joel Byram, who was shuffling towards the nearest tramway station. Two. And you are pleased with Paris, Monsieur Aston? demanded Madame Moret. The next morning, as Hastings came into the breakfast-room of the pension, rosy from his plunge in the limited bath above. I am sure I shall like it, he replied, wondering at his own depression of spirits. The maid brought him coffee and rolls he returned the vacant glance of the big-headed young man and acknowledged diffidently the salutes of the snuffy old gentleman he did not try to finish his coffee and sat crumbling a roll unconscious of the sympathetic glances of madame morat who had tact enough not to bother him presently a maid entered with a tray on which were balanced two bowls of chocolate and the snuffy old gentleman leered at her ankles the maid deposited the chocolate at a table near the window and smiled at hastings then a thin young lady followed by her counterpart in all except years marched into the room and took the table near the window they were evidently american but hastings if he expected any sign of recognition was disappointed to be ignored by compatriots intensified his depression he fumbled with his knife and looked at his plate the thin young lady was talkative enough she was quite aware of hastings presence ready to be flattered if he looked at her but on the other hand she felt her superiority for she had been three weeks in paris and he it was easy to see had not yet unpacked his steamer trunk her conversation was complacent she argued with her mother upon the relative merits of the louvre and the bon marché but her mother's part of the discussion was mostly confined to the observation "'Why, Susie!' The snappy old gentleman had left the room in a body, outwardly polite and inwardly raging. They could not endure the Americans, who filled the room with their chatter. The big-headed young man looked after them with a knowing cough, murmuring, "'Gay old birds!' "'They look like bad old men, Mr. Bladen,' said the girl. To this Mr. Bladen smiled and said, "'They've had their day.' "'in a tone which implied that he was now having his. "'And that's why they all have baggy eyes,' cried the girl. "'I think it is a shame for young gentlemen.' "'Why, Susie?' said the mother, and the conversation lagged. "'After a while, Mr. Bladen threw down the Petit Journal, "'which he daily studied at the expense of the house, "'and turning to Hastings, started to make himself agreeable. "'He began by saying, "'I see you are American.' To this brilliant and original opening, Hastings, deadly homesick, replied gratefully, and the conversation was judicially nourished by observations from Miss Susie Bing, distinctly addressed to Mr. Bladen. In the course of the events, Miss Susie, forgetting to address herself exclusively to Mr. Bladen, and Hastings replying to her general question, the entente cordiale was established. And Susy and her mother extended a protectorate over what was clearly neutral territory. Mister Hastings, you must not desert the pension every evening as Mister Bladen does. Paris is an awful place for young gentlemen, and Mister Bladen is a horrid cynic. Mister Bladen looked gratified. Hastings answered, "I shall be at the studio all day, and I imagine I shall be glad enough to come back at night." Mister Bladen, who at a salary of fifteen dollars a week, acted as agent for the pluley manufacturing company of chore new york smiled a skeptical smile and withdrew to keep an appointment with a customer on the boulevard magenta hastings walked into the garden with mrs bing and susie and at their invitation sat down in the shade before the iron gate the chestnut tree still bore the fragrant spikes of pink and white and the bees hummed among the roses trellised on the white walled house a faint freshness was in the air. The watering carts moved up and down the street, and a clear stream bubbled over the spotless gutters of the Rue de la Grande Chamire. The sparrows were merry along the curbstones, taking bath after bath in water and ruffling their feathers with delight. In a walled garden across the street, a pair of blackbirds whistled among the almond trees. Hastings swallowed the lump in his throat, for the song of the birds and the ripple of water in a paris gutter brought back to him the sunny meadows of millbrook that's a blackbird observed miss bing see him there on the bush with the pink blossoms he's all black except his bill and that looks as if it had been dipped in an omelet as some frenchman says why susy said mrs bing that garden belongs to a studio inhabited by two americans continued the girl serenely and I often see them pass. They seem to need a great many models, mostly young and feminine. Why Susie? Perhaps they prefer painting that kind, but I don't see why they should invite five, with three more young gentlemen, and all get into two cabs and drive away singing. This street, she continued, is dull. There is nothing to see except the garden and a glimpse of the boulevard Montparnasse through the Rue de la Grande Chamier no one ever passes except a policeman there is a convent on the corner i thought it was a jesuit college began hastings but was at once overwhelmed with a Baydecker description of the place ending with on one side stands the palatial hotels of jean paul Lawrence and goulamin bonjourou and an opposite in the little passage stanleyas carolus duran paints the masterpieces which charm the wild? the blackbird burst into a ripple of golden throaty notes and from some distant green spot in the city an unknown wild bird answered with a frenzy of liquid trills until the sparrows paused in their abulations to look up with restless chirps then a butterfly came and sat on a cluster heliotrope and waved his crimson banded wings in the hot sunshine Hastings knew him for a friend, and before his eyes there came a vision of tall mulins and scented milkweed alive with painted wings, a vision of a white house and woodbine-covered piazza, a glimpse of a man reading and a woman leaning over the pansy bed, and his heart was full. He was startled a moment later by Miss Bing. I believe you are homesick, Hastings blushed. "'Miss Bing looked at him with a sympathetic sigh and continued. "'Whenever I felt homesick at first, I used to go with Mama and walk in the Luxembourg gardens. "'I don't know why it is, but those old-fashioned gardens seem to bring me nearer home than anything in this artificial city.' "'But they are full of marble statues,' said Mrs. Bing mildly. "'I don't see the resemblance myself.' "'Where is the Luxembourg?' inquired Hastings after a silence." Come with me to the gate, said Miss Bing. He rose and followed her, and she pointed out the Rue Vavin at the foot of the street. You pass by the convent to the right, she smiled, and Hastings went. End of section 13 Section 14 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. RECORDING BY EVA STAYS THE STREET OF OUR LADY OF THE FIELDS PART THREE AND FOUR THREE The Luxembourg was a blaze of flowers. He walked slowly through the long avenues of trees, past mossy marbles and old-time columns, and threading the grove by the bronze lion, came upon the tree-crowned terrace above the fountain. Below lay the basin shining in the sunlight, Flowering almonds encircled the terrace, and, in a greater spiral, groves of chestnuts wound in and out and down among the moist thickets by the western palace wing. At one end of the avenue of trees, the observatory rose, its white domes piled up like an eastern mosque. At the other end stood the heavy palace, with every window pane ablaze in the fierce sun of June. Around the fountain, children in white Capped nurses armed with bamboo poles were pushing toy boats whose sails hung limp in the sunshine. A dark policeman wearing red epaulets and a dress sword watched them for a while and then went away to remonstrate with a young man who had unchained his dog. The dog was pleasantly occupied in rubbing grass and dirt into his back while his legs waved in the air. The policeman pointed at the dog. He was speechless with indignation. Well, Captain," smiled the young fellow. "Well, Monsieur Student," growled the policeman. "What have you come and complained to me for? If you don't chain him, I'll take him!" shouted the policeman. "What's that to me, Mon Capitaine? What, what? Isn't that bulldog yours?" If it was, don't you suppose I'd chain him? The officer glared for a moment in silence, then deciding that as he was a student he was wicked, grabbed at the dog, who promptly dodged. Around and around the flower beds they raced, and when the officer came too near for comfort, the bulldog cut across a flower bed, which perhaps was not playing fair. The young man was amused, and the dog also seemed to enjoy the exercise the policeman noticed this and decided to strike at the fountain-head of the evil he stormed up to the student and said as the owner of this public nuisance i arrest you but objected the other i disclaim the dog that was a poser it was useless to attempt to catch the dog until three gardeners lent a hand but then the dog simply ran away and disappeared in the rue de medici The policeman shambled off to find consolation among the white-capped nurses, and the student, looking at his watch, stood up yawning. Then, catching sight of Hastings, he smiled and bowed. Hastings walked over to the marble, laughing. "'Why, Clifford,' he said, "'I didn't recognize you.' "'It is my moustache,' sighed the other. "'I sacrificed it to humor a whim of—of—a friend. "'What do you think of my dog?' "'Then he is yours.' cried hastings of course it's a pleasant change for him this playing tag with policemen but he is known now and i'll have to stop it he's gone home he always does when the gardeners take a hand it's a pity he's fond of rolling on lawns then they chatted for a moment of hastings prospect and clifford politely offered to stand his sponsor at the studio you see old tabby i mean dr byram told me about you before i met you explained clifford and ellian and i will be glad to do anything we can then looking at his watch again he muttered i have just ten minutes to catch the versailles train au revoir and started to go but catching sight of a girl advancing by the fountain took off his hat with a confused smile why are you not at versailles she said with an almost imperceptible acknowledgement of Hastings' presence. "'I'm—I—I'm I'm going,' murmured Clifford. For a moment they faced each other, and then Clifford, very red, stammered, "'With your permission, I have the honour of presenting you to my friend, Monsieur Hastings.' Hastings bowed low. She smiled very sweetly, but there was something of malice in the quiet inclination of her small Parisian head. "'I could have wished—' she said, that Monsieur Clifford might spare me more time when he brings with him so charming an American. Must must I go, Valentine, began Clifford. Certainly, she replied. Clifford took his leave with very bad grace, wincing when she added, and give my dearest love to Cécile, and he disappeared in the rue de The girl turned as if to go, but then, suddenly remembering Hastings, looked at him and shook her head. "'Monsieur Clifford is so perfectly hare-brained,' she smiled. "'It is embarrassing sometimes. You have heard, of course, all about his success at the salon.' He looked puzzled, and she noticed it. "'You have been to the salon, of course.' "'Why, no,' he answered. "'I only arrived in Paris three days ago.' she seemed to pay little heed to his explanation but continued nobody imagined he had the energy to do anything good but on varnishing day the salon was astonished by the entrance of monsieur clifford who strolled about as bland as you please with an orchid in his buttonhole and a beautiful picture on the line she smiled to herself at the reminiscence and looked at the fountain Monsieur Bouguereau told me that Monsieur Julien was so astonished that he only shook hands with Monsieur Clifford in a dazed manner, and actually forgot to pat him on the back. Fancy, she continued with much merriment, fancy Papa Julien forgetting to pat one on the back. Hastings wondered at her acquaintance with the grey Bouguereau looked at her with respect. May I ask, he said diffidently whether you are a pupil of Bruggerow. I," she said in some surprise. Then she looked at him curiously. Was he permitting himself the liberty of joking on such short acquaintance? His pleasant, serious face questioned hers. Chans, she thought, what a droll man. Surely you study art, he said. She leaned back on the crooked stick of her parasol and looked at him. Why do you think so? because you speak as if you did you are making fun of me she said and it is not good taste she stopped confused as he coloured to the roots of his hair how long have you been in paris she said at length three days he replied gravely but but surely you are not a nouveau you speak french so well then after a pause really are you a nouveau i am he said She sat down on the marble bench, lately occupied by Clifford, and, tilting her parasol over her small head, looked at him. "'I don't believe it.' He felt the compliment, and, for a moment, hesitated to declare himself one of the despised. Then, mustering up his courage, he told her how new and green he was, and all with a frankness which made her blue eyes open very wide, and her lips part in the sweetest of smiles. "'You have never seen a studio? Never.' nor a model no how funny she said solemnly then they both laughed and you have you seen studios hundreds and models millions and you know Brugereau? yes and henner and constant and lorne's and peu de chavons and d'agnan and coutois and and all the rest of them and yet you say you are not an artist pardon she said gravely Did I say I was not? Won't you tell me? He hesitated. At first she looked at him shaking her head and smiling. Then of a sudden her eyes fell and she began tracing figures with her parasol in the gravel at her feet. Hastings had taken a place on the seat and now, with his elbows on his knees, sat watching the spray drifting above the fountain jet. A small boy, dressed as a sailor, stood poking his yacht and crying, "'I won't go home! I won't go home!' His nurse raised her hands to heaven. "'Just like a little American boy,' thought Hastings, and a pang of homesickness shot through him. Presently the nurse captured the boat, and the small boy stood at bay. "'Monsieur René, when you decide to come here, you may have your boat.' The boy backed away, scowling. "'Give me my boat!' I say, he cried, and don't call me Renee, for my name's Randall, and you know it. Hello, said Hastings, Randall, that's English. I am American, announced the boy in perfectly good English, turning to look at Hastings. And she's such a fool, she calls me Renee because Mamma calls me Ranny. Here he dodged the exasperated nurse and took up his station behind Hastings, who laughed, and catching him round the waist, lifted him onto his lap one of my countrymen he said to the girl beside him he smiled while he spoke but there was a queer feeling in his throat don't you see the stars and stripes on my yacht demanded randall sure enough the american colours hung limply under the nurse's arm oh cried the girl he is charming and impulsively stooped to kiss him but the infant randall wiggled out of Hastings's arm and his nurse pounced upon him with angry glance at the girl She reddened, and then bit her lips as the nurse, with eyes still fixed on her, dragged the child away, and ostentatiously wiped his lips with her handkerchief. Then she stole a look at Hastings, and bit her lip again. "'What an ill-tempered woman,' he said. "'In America, most nurses are flattered when people kiss their children.' For an instant, she tipped the parasol to hide her face, then closed it with a snap, and looked at him defiantly. "'Do you think it is strange that she objected?' "'Why not?' he said in surprise. Again, she looked at him with quick-searching eyes. His eyes were clear and bright, and he smiled back, repeating, Why not? You are droll, she murmured, bending her head. Why? But she made no answer and sat silent, tracing curves and circles in the dust with her parasol. After a moment, he said, I am glad to see that young people have so much liberty here. I understood that the French were not at all like us, you know in america or at least where i live in millbrook girls have every liberty go out alone and receive their friends alone and i was afraid i should miss it here but i see how it is now and i am glad i was mistaken she raised her eyes to his and kept them there he continued pleasantly since i have sat here i have seen a lot of pretty girls walking alone on the terrace there and then you are alone too tell me for i do not know french customs Do you have the liberty of going to the theatre without a chaperone? For a long time she studied his face, and then, with a trembling smile, she said, Why do you ask me? Because you must know, of course, he said gaily. Yes, she replied indifferently. I know. He waited for an answer, but getting none, decided that perhaps she had misunderstood him. I hope you don't think I mean to presume on our short acquaintance, he began, in fact it is very odd but i don't know your name when clifford presented me he only mentioned mine is that the custom in france it is the custom in the latin quarter she said with a queer light in her eyes then suddenly she began talking almost feverishly you must know monsieur hastings that we are all en pouson, jeune here in the latin quarter we are very bohemian and etiquette and ceremony are out of place it was for that monsieur clifford presented you to me with small ceremony and left us together with less only for that and i am his friend and i have many friends in the latin quarter and we all know each other very well and i am not studying art but 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 what bewildered i shall not tell you it is a secret she said with an uncertain smile on both cheeks a pink spot was burning and her eyes were very bright then in a moment her face fell do you know Monsieur clifford very intimately not very after a while she turned to him grave and a little pale my name is valentine valentine Tissot. might might i ask a service of you on such very short acquaintance oh he cried i should be honoured it is only this she said gently it is not much promise me not to speak to Monsieur clifford about me Promise me that you will speak to no one about me. I promise, he said, greatly puzzled. She laughed nervously. I wish to remain a mystery. It is a caprice. But he began, I had wished I had hoped that you might give Monsieur Clifford permission to bring me, to present me at your house. My my house? she repeated. I mean where you live, in fact, to present me to your family. The change in the girl's face shocked him. I beg your pardon, he cried. I have hurt you. And, as quick as a flash, she understood him because she was a woman. My parents are dead, she said. Presently, he began again, very gently. Would it displease you if I beg you to receive me? Is it the custom? I cannot, she answered, then, glancing up at him. I am sorry. I should like to, but believe me, I cannot. He bowed seriously and looked vaguely uneasy. It isn't. "'Because I don't wish to. I—I I like you. You are very kind to me.' "'Kind?' he cried, surprised and puzzled. "'I like you,' she said slowly, "'and we will see each other sometimes, if you will.' "'At friends' houses?' "'No, not at friends' houses.' "'Where?' "'Here,' she said with defiant eyes. "'Why?' he cried in paris you are much more liberals in your views than we are she looked at him curiously yes we are very bohemian i think it is charming he declared you see we shall be in the best of society she ventured timidly with a pretty gesture towards the statues of the dead queens ranged in stately ranks above the terrace he looked at her delighted, and she brightened at the success of her innocent little pleasantry. Indeed, she smiled, I shall be well chaperoned, because, you see, we are under the protection of the gods themselves. Look, there are Apollo and Juno and Venus on their pedestals, counting them on her small, gloved fingers, and Ceres and Hercules and— But I can't make out— Hastings turned to look up at the winged god under whose shadow they were seated— Why, it is love, he said. For There is a nouveau here, drawled the fat, leaning around his easel and addressing his friend Bowles. There is a nouveau here who is so tender and green and appetizing that heaven help him if he should fall into a salad bowl. Hey, see, inquired Bowles, plastering in a background with a broken palette knife, and squinting at the effect with approval. Yes, Gredonk or Okash, and how he ever grew up among the daisies and escaped the cow's heaven knows. Bowles rubbed his thumb across the outline of his study to throw in a little atmosphere, as he said, glared at the model, pulled at his pipe, and finding it out, struck a match on his neighbor's back to relight it. His name, continued Lafitte. "'hurling a bit of bread at the hat-rack. "'His name is Hastings. "'He is a berry. "'He knows no more about the world. "'And here Mr. LaFat's face spoke volumes for his own knowledge of that planet. than a maiden cat on its first moonlight stroll. "'Bowles, now having succeeded in lighting his pipe, "'repeated the thumb-touch on the other edge of the study and said, "'Ah!' yes, continued his friend. And you would imagine it, he seems to think that everything here goes on as it does in his little backwood ranch at home. He talks about the pretty girls who come walk alone in the streets, says how sensible it is. How French parents are misrepresented in America. Says that for his part he friends French girls, and he confessed to only knowing one. As jolly as American girls, I tried to set him straight. "'tried to give him a pointer as to what sort of ladies walk about alone or with students, "'and he was either too stupid or too innocent to catch on. "'Then I gave it to him straight, and he said I was a vile-minded fool and marched off. "'Did you assist him with your shoe?' inquired Bowles, languidly interested. "'Well, no. He called you a vile-minded fool.' "'He was correct,' said Clifford from his easel in front. "'What?' "'What do you mean?' demanded Fat, turning red. "'That,' replied Clifford. "'Who spoke to you? Is this your business?' sneered Bowles, nearly lost his balance as Clifford swung about and eyed him. "'Yes,' he said slowly. "'It's my business.' No one spoke for some time. Then Clifford sang out. "'I say, Hastings!' And when Hastings left his easel and came round, he nodded toward the astonished Lafette this man has been disagreeable to you and i want to tell you that any time you feel inclined to kick him why i will hold the other creature hastings embarrassed said why no i don't agree with his ideas nothing more clifford said naturally and slipping his arm through hastings strolled about with him and introduced him to several of his own friends at which all the nouveau opened their eyes with envy and the studio were given to understand that hastings although prepared to do menial work as the latest nouveau was already within the charm circle of the old respected and feared the truly great the rest finished the model resumed his place, and work went on in a chorus of songs and yells and every ear-splitting noise which the art student utters when studying the beautiful five o'clock struck the model yawned stretched and climbed into his trousers and the noisy contents of six studios crowded through the halls and down into the street ten minutes later hastings found himself on top of a montro tram and shortly afterward was joined by clifford they climbed down at the rue gay-lussac i always stop here observed clifford i like the walk through the luxembourg by the way said hastings how can i call on you when i don't know where you live why i live opposite you what the studio and the garden where the almond trees are and the blackbirds exactly said clifford i am with my friend elliot hastings thought of the description of the two american artists which he had heard from miss susie bing and looked blank. Clifford continued, "'Perhaps you had better let me know when you think of coming so. So I will be sure to—to be there,' he ended rather lamely. "'I shouldn't care to meet any of your model friends there,' said Hastings, smiling. "'You know, my ideas are rather straight-laced. I suppose you would say puritanical. I shouldn't enjoy it and wouldn't know how to behave.' "'Oh, I understand,' said Clifford but added with great cordiality i am sure we'll be friends although you may not approve of me and my set but you will like severn and selby because-because well they are like yourself old chap after a moment he continued there is something i want to speak to you about you see when i introduced you last week in luxembourg to valentine not a word cried hastings smiling you must not tell me a word of her why no not a word he said gaily. I insist. Promise me upon your honour you will not speak of her until I give you permission. Promise. I promise, said Clifford amazed. She is a charming girl. We had such delightful chat after you left, and I thank you for presenting me, but not another word about her until I give you permission. Oh, murmured Clifford. Remember your promise, he smiled as he turned into his gateway. Clifford strolled across the street and, traversing the ivy covered alley, entered his garden. He felt for his studio key, muttering, I wonder, I wonder. But of course he doesn't. He entered the hallway and, fitting the key into the door, stood staring at the two cards tacked over the panels. Fox Hall, Clifford. Richard Osborne Elliot. Why the devil does he, he want me to speak of her? He opened the door, and, discouraging, the caresses of two brindled bulldogs sank down on the sofa. Elliot sat smoking and sketching with a piece of charcoal by the window. "'Hello,' he said without looking around. Clifford gazed absently at the back of his head, murmuring, "'I'm afraid. I'm afraid that man is too innocent. I say, Elliot,' he said at last. "'Hastings, you know the chap that old tabby Byram came around here to tell us about, the day you had a hide Colette in the armoire.' Yes? What's up? Oh, nothing. He's a brick. Yes, said Elliot, without enthusiasm. Don't you think so? demanded Clifford. Why, yes, but he is going to have a tough time when some of his illusions are dispelled. More shame to those who have to dispel them. Yes. Wait until he comes to pay his call on us. Unexpectedly, of course. Clifford looked virtuous and lighted a cigar. I was just going to say— he observed, that I have asked him not to come around without letting us know, so I can postpone any orgy you may have intended. Ah! cried Elliot, indignantly, I suppose you put it to him in that way. Not exactly, grinned Clifford. Then, more seriously, I don't want anything to occur here to bother him. He's a brick, and it's a pity we can't be more like him. I am, observed Elliot complacently, only living with you— listen cried the other i have managed to put my foot in it in great style do you know what i've done well the first time i met him in the street or rather it was in the luxembourg i introduced him to valentine did he object believe me said clifford solemnly this rustic hastings has no more idea that valentine is is in fact is valentine than he has that he himself is a beautiful example of moral decency in a quarter where morals are as rare as elephants. I heard enough in conversation between the blackguard Lufat and the little immoral eruption Bulls to open my eyes. I tell you, he sings as a trump. He's a healthy, clean-minded young fellow, bred in a small country village, brought up with the idea that saloons are way stations to hell. And as for women, well, demanded Elliot, Well, said Clifford, his idea of the dangerous woman is probably a painted Jezebel. Probably, replied the other. He's a Trump, said Clifford, and if he swears the world is as good and as pure as his own, I'll swear he's right. Elliot rubbed his charcoal on his file to get a point and turned to his sketch, saying he will never hear any pessimism from Richard Osborne E., "'He's a lesson to me,' said Clifford. Then he unfolded a small perfumed note written on rose-colored paper, which had been lying on the table before him. He read it, smiled, whistled a bar or two from Miss Heliot, and sat down to answer it on his best cream-laid note paper. When it was written and sealed, he picked up his stick and marched up and down the studio two or three times, whistling. "'Going out,' inquired the other without turning. "'Yes,' he said, but lingered a moment over Elliot's shoulder, watching him pick out the lights in his sketch with a bit of bread. "'Tomorrow is Sunday,' he observed after a moment's silence. "'Well?' inquired Elliot. "'Have you seen Colette?' "'No, I will tonight. She and Rowden and Jacqueline are coming to Boulance. I suppose you and Cecile will be there?' "'Well, no,' replied Clifford. "'Cecile dines at home tonight, and I—I I had an idea of going to Mignon's.' Elliot looked at him with disapproval. "'You can make all the arrangements for La Roche without me,' he continued, avoiding Elliot's eyes. "'What are you up to now?' "'Nothing,' protested Clifford. "'Don't tell me,' replied his chum with scorn. "'Fellows don't rush off to Mignons when they set dine at Boulons. Who is it now? But no, I won't ask that. What's the use?' Then he lifted up his voice in complaint and beat upon the table with his pipe what's the use of ever trying to keep track of you what will cecile say oh yes what will she say it is a pity you can't be constant two months yes by jove and the quarter is indulgent but you abuse its good nature and mine too presently he arose and jamming his hat on his head marched to the door heaven alone knows why anyone puts up with your antics but they all do and so do i if I were Cecile or any of the other pretty fools after whom you have toddled and will, and all human probabilities continue to toddle, I say if I were Cecile, I'd spank you. Now I'm going to Boulogne, and as usual I shall make excuses for you and arrange the affair. I don't care continental where you are going, but by the skull of the studio skeleton, if you don't turn up tomorrow with your sketch kit under one arm and Cecile under the other, if you don't turn up in good shape, I am done with you, and the rest can think what they please. Good night. Clifford said good night with a pleasant smile as he could muster, and then sat down with his eyes on the door. He took out his watch and gave Elliot ten minutes to vanish, then rang the concierge's call, murmuring, Oh dear, oh dear, why the devil do I do it? Alfred, he said, as that gimlet-eyed person answered the call. Make yourself clean and proper, Alfred, and replace your sabots. With a pair of shoes, then put on your best hat and take this letter to the big white house in the rue du Dragon. There is no answer, mon petit Alfred. The concierge departed with a snort in which unwillingness for the errand and affection for Monsieur Clifford were blended. Then, with great care, the young man arranged himself in all the beauties of his and elliot's wardrobe. He took his time about it and occasionally interrupted his toilet to play his banjo or make pleasing diversion for the Bulldogs by gambling about on all fours. I've got two hours before me, he thought, and borrowed a pair of Elliot's silken footgear, with which he and the dogs played ball until he decided to put them on. Then he lighted a cigarette and inspected his dress coat. When he had emptied it of four handkerchiefs, a fan, and a pair of crumpled gloves as long as his eye, he decided it was not suited to add Eclat to his charms and cast about in his mind for a substitute elliot was too thin and anyways his coats were now under lock and key Rowden probably was as badly off as himself hastings hastings was the man but when he threw on a smoking jacket and sauntered over to hastings house he was informed that he had been gone over an hour now where in the name of all that's reasonable could he have gone muttered clifford looking down the street the maid didn't know, so he bestowed upon her a fascinating smile and lounged back to the studio. Hastings was not far away. The Luxembourg is within five minutes' walk to the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Champs. And there he sat under the shadow of a winged god, and there he sat for an hour, poking holes in the dust and watching the steps which lead from the northern terrace to the fountains. The sun hung, a purple globe above the misty hills of the Moudon. Long streamers of clouds touched with rose swept low on the western sky, and the dome of the distant invalides burned like an opal through the haze. Behind the palace, the smoke from a high chimney mounted straight into the air purple until it crossed the sun, where it changed to a bar of smouldering fire. High above the darkening foliage of the chestnuts, the twin towers of Saint-Sulpice rose an ever-deepening silhouette a sleepy blackbird was caroling in some near thicket and pigeons passed and repassed with the whispers of soft winds in their wings the light on the palace windows had died away and the dome of the pantheon swam aglow above the northern terrace a fiery valhalla in the sky while below in grim array along the terrace reigned the marble ranks of queens looked out into the west from the end of a long walk by the northern façade of the palace came the noise of omnibuses and the cries of the street hastings looked at the palace clock six and as his own watch agreed with it he fell to poking holes in the gravel again a constant stream of people passed between the odeon and the fountain priests in black with silver buckled shoes line soldiers slouchy and rakish neat girls without hats bearing milliner's boxes students with black portfolios and high hats students with berets and big canes nervous quick-stepping officers symphonies in turquoise and silver ponderous jangling cavalrymen all over dust pastry cooks boys skipping along the utter disregard for the safety of the basket balanced on the impish heads and then the lean outcast the shambling paris tramp Slouching with shoulders bent, and little eye furtively scanning the ground for smokers' refuse, all these moved in steady stream across the fountain circle and out into the city by the Odeon, whose long arcades are now beginning to flicker with gas jets. The melancholy bells of the Saint-Sulpice struck the hour, and the clock tower of the Palace lighted up. Then hurrying steps sounded across the gravel, and Hastings raised his head. How late you are, he said, but his voice was hoarse, and only his flushed face told how long had seemed the waiting. She said, I was kept, indeed, I was so much annoyed, and—and I may only stay a moment. She sat down beside him, casting a furtive glance over her shoulder at the gods upon his pedestal. What nuisance, intruding Cupid, is still there? Wings and arrows, too, said Hastings, unheeding her motion to be seated. Wings, she murmured, oh yes, to fly away with when he's tired of his play. Of course, it was a man who conceived the idea of wings, otherwise cupid would have been insupportable. Do you think so? Ma foi, it's what men think, and women. Oh, she said with a toss of her small head, I really forget what we are speaking of. We were speaking of love, said Hastings. I was not, said the girl then looking up at the marble god i don't care for this one at all i don't believe he knows how to shoot his arrows no indeed he is a coward he creeps up like an assassin in the twilight i don't approve of cowardice she announced and turned her back on the statue i think said hastings quietly that he does shoot fairly yes and even gives one warning is it your experience monsieur hastings he looked straight into her eyes and said "'He is warning me.' "'Heed the warning, then,' she cried with a nervous laugh. As she spoke, she stripped off her gloves, then carefully proceeded to draw them on again. When this was accomplished, she glanced at the palace clock, saying, "'Oh, dear, how late it is!' furled her umbrella, then unfurled it, and finally looked at him. "'No,' he said, "'I shall not heed his warning.' "'Oh, dear,' she sighed again, still talking about that tiresome statue.' then, stealing a glance at his face, I suppose, I suppose you are in love. I don't know, he muttered. I suppose I am. She raised her head with a quick gesture. You seem delighted at the idea, she said, but bit her lip and trembled as his eyes met hers. Then sudden fear came over her and she sprang up, staring into the gathering shadows. Are you cold? he said. But she only answered, Oh dear, oh dear, it is late, so late, I must go good night she gave him her gloved hand a moment and then withdrew it with a start what is it he insisted are you frightened she looked at him strangely no no not frightened you are very good to me by jove he burst out what do you mean by saying i'm good to you that's at least the third time and i don't understand the sound of a drum from the guard-house at the palace cut him short listen she whispered they are going to close it's late oh so late the rolling of the drum came nearer and nearer then the silhouette of the drummer cut the sky above the eastern terrace the fading light lingered a moment on his belt and bayonet then he passed into shadows drumming the echoes awake the roll became fainter along the eastern terrace then grew and grew and rattled with increasing sharpness when he passed the avenue by the bronze lion and turned down the western terrace walk louder and louder the drum sounded and the echoes struck back the notes from the gray palace walls and now the drummer loomed up before them his red trousers a dull spot in the gathering gloom the brass of his drum and bayonet touched with a pale spark his epaulets tossing on his shoulder he passed leaving the crash of the drum in their ears and far into the alley of trees they saw his little tin cup shining on his haversack. then the sentinels began the monotonous cry on firm on firm and the bugle blew from the barracks in the Rue de turon on firm on firm good-night she whispered i must return alone to-night he watched her until she reached the northern terrace and then sat down on the marble seat until a hand on his shoulder "'and a glimmer of bayonets warned him away. "'She passed on through the grove "'and turning into the Rue de Medici, "'traversed it to the boulevard. "'At the corner she bought a bunch of violets "'and walked along the boulevard to the Rue d'Eclos. De "'A cab was drawn up before Boulons "'and a pretty girl, aided by Elliot, jumped out. "'Valentine!' cried the girl. "'Come with us!' "'I can't,' she said, stopping a moment. "'I have a rendezvous at Mignon's. "'Not Victor?' cried the girl laughing but she passed with a little shiver nodding good-night then turning to the boulevard st germain she walked a little faster to escape a gay party sitting before the cafe who called to her to join them at the door of the restaurant mignon stood a coal-black negro in buttons he took off his peaked cap as she mounted the carpeted stairs send eugene to me she said at the office and passing through the hallway to the right of the dining-room stopped before a row of paneled doors a waiter passed and she repeated her demand for Eugene, who presently appeared, noiselessly skipping, and bowed murmuring, Madame, who is here? No one in the cabinets, Madame, in the half Madame Madelion and Monsieur Gay, Monsieur de Clement, Monsieur Clisson, Madame Marie, and there sat. Then he looked around and, bowing again, murmured, Monsieur awaits Madame since half an hour, and he knocked at one of the panelled doors bearing the number six clifford opened the door and the girl entered the garcon bowed her in and whispering will monsieur have the goodness to ring vanished he helped her off with her jacket and took her hat and umbrella when she was seated at the little table with clifford opposite she smiled and leaned forward on both elbows looking him in the face what are you doing here she demanded waiting he replied in accents of adoration for an instant she turned and examined herself in glass The wide blue eyes, the curling hair, the straight nose, the short curled lip flashed in the mirror in an instant only, and then its depths reflected her pretty neck and back. Thus I do turn my back on vanity, she said, and then leaning forward again. What are you doing here? Waiting for you, repeated Clifford, slightly troubled, and Cecile. now don't, Valentine. Do you know? She said calmly. I dislike your conduct. He was a little disconcerted, and rang for Eugene to cover his confusion. The soup was bisque, and the wine, promery, and the courses followed each other with the usual regularity, until Eugene brought coffee, and there was nothing left on the table but a small silver lamp. "'Valentine,' said Clifford, after having obtained permission to smoke. "'Is it vaudeville, or the Eldorado, or both, or the Nouveau Cirque, or—' "'It is here,' said Valentine.' "'Well,' he said, greatly flattered, "'I'm afraid I couldn't amuse you. "'Oh, yes, you are funnier than the Eldorado. "'Now see here, don't guy me, Valentines. "'You always do, and, and... "'You know what they say, a good laugh kills what?' "'Er, er, love and all that,' she laughed, "'until her eyes were moist with tears. "'Tians,' she cried, "'he is dead then,' Clifford eyed her with growing alarm. Do you know why I came? She said. No, he replied uneasily, I don't. How long have you made love to me? Well, he admitted somewhat startled, I should say, for about a year. It is a year, I think. Are you not tired? He did not answer. Don't you know that I like you too well to to ever fall in love with you, she said. Don't you know that we are too good comrades, too old friends for that? and were we not do you think that i do not know your history monsieur clifford don't be don't be so sarcastic he urged don't be unkind valentine i'm not i'm kind i'm very kind to you and to cecile cecile is tired of me i hope she is said the girl for she deserves a better fate tiens do you know your reputation in the quarter of the inconstant and most inconstant utterly incorrigible and no more serious than a gnat on a summer night poor cecile clifford looked so uncomfortable that she spoke more kindly i like you you know that everybody does you are a spoiled child here everything is permitted you and every one makes allowances but every one cannot be a victim to caprice caprice he cried by jove if the girls of the latin quarter are not capricious "'Never mind, never mind about that. "'You must not sit in judgment. "'You, of all men, why are you here to-night?' "'Oh,' she cried, "'I will tell you why. "'Monsieur receives a little note. "'He sends a little answer. "'He dresses in his conquering raiment. "'I don't,' said Clifford, very red. "'You do, and it becomes you,' "'she retorted with a faint smile. "'Then again, very quietly, "'I am in your power, "'but I know I am in the power of a friend.' I have come to acknowledge it to you here, and it is because of that that I am here to beg of you a uh, a favor. Clifford opened his eyes, but said nothing. I am in great distress of mind. It is Monsieur Hastings.' "'Well,' said Clifford, in some astonishment, "'I want to ask you,' she continued in a low voice, "'I want to ask you to—to—in case you should speak of me before him.' Not to say, not to say. I shall not speak of you to him, he said quietly. Can, can you prevent others? I might, if I was present, may I ask why? That is not fair, she murmured. You know how, how he considers me, as he considers every woman. You know how different he is from you and the rest. I've never seen a man, such a man as Monsieur Hastings. He let his cigarette go out unnoticed. I am almost afraid of him afraid he should know what we all are in the quarter oh i do not wish him to know i do not wish him to to turn from me to cease from speaking to me as he does you you and the rest cannot know what it has been to me i could not believe him i could not believe he was so good and and noble i do not wish him to know so soon he will find out sooner or later He will find out for himself, and then he will turn away from me. Why, she cried passionately, why should he turn away from me and not from you? Clifford, much embarrassed, eyed his cigarette. The girl rose, very white. He is your friend. You have a right to warn him. He is my friend, he said at length. They looked at each other in silence. Then she cried, by all that I hold to me, most sacred, you need not warn him. I shall trust your word, he said pleasantly. End of section 14
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.